Welcome to This Week in Legal Blogging. This is episode number 43. I am Bob Ambrogi, your host, and this show is presented by Lexblog. Lexblog is home to the world's largest community of legal bloggers and is the industry-leading provider of professional blogs and turnkey digital publishing solutions to lawyers and the world's largest law firms for more than 17 years. Again, this is Bob Ambrogi. I am uh, the editor and publisher of my own blog, Law Sites Blog, and host of the another legal podcast called Law Next. And this week on This Week in Legal Blogging, we are really happy to have with us one of the true deans of legal blogging. It is Bill Marler, uh, who writes Marler Blog and a whole network of blogs and all done under the auspices of his firm, Marler Clark. He is one of the nation's, if not the nation's, leading food safety lawyer. Bill Marler, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to see you. Yeah, it is good to see you, and uh, I hope you've uh, been doing well over this crazy time of, of the past year. Well, before we start talking about your blog, why don't you tell us a little bit about your practice? Sure. Well, I my practice exclusively focuses on bacterial and viral illnesses, mostly food-related, uh, although we've you know, been involved with cases uh, involving bacterial contaminations in pool settings or petting zoos or environmental contamination. But the vast majority of the work that I do is E. coli, salmonella, listeria cases linked to food consumption. Uh, just before I got on with you, I'd been on the, a call with a, uh, a group of lawyers in South Africa where I'm helping fund and run a listeria litigation uh, that we represent over a thousand people, 200 whom have died. So in a sense, that's the kind of thing that I've been doing uh, since the Jack in the Box E. coli outbreak in 1993. And I know that, was that how you got started in it? I know that you were involved in that case, you represented. I did. Uh, yeah, I was, I was, it was 28 years ago. Uh, I was a uh, 35-year-old lawyer uh, at a defense firm, uh, primarily, uh, when I wound up getting one of the early plaintiff's cases. I filed the first lawsuit uh, as a class action when we could do class actions back then. And, you know, went from having one client to 100 clients in a relatively short period of time. I litigated that case, but, you know, one of the truisms about the practice of law is, uh, you know, if you offer to do all the work, most lawyers will let you do that. And I, that's exactly what I did. At some point, you know, in the latter part of the year that I was started this litigation, I went to the partners and asked them to make me a partner because it, by then it was pretty clear that this was going to be a, uh, a groundbreaking case, both from a legal perspective and a financial perspective. And they said, hey, you've only been out of law school for four years. You know, you'll just need to wait. And I said, well, then if that's the case, I'll see you later. I'm going to go start my own law firm, which I did. You know, one of the things I've learned from from talking to you a couple of times is, is just how devastating these foodborne illness cases can be. I mean, right. obviously they can cause death, but even when they don't cause death, 
the consequences can really be tragic for the victims yeah. of these illnesses. I mean, could you, could you just describe that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I just just settled a case uh, in the last 30 days of a, a four-year-old child from Canada who was on a family vacation at Disneyland. And on the and they drove the whole way from British Columbia all the way to L.A. And on the way back, uh, they stopped uh, at a and got takeout at a restaurant uh, that included uh, a little romaine salad that the kid nibbled on. Uh, by the time he got uh, back to uh, British Columbia, he was quite ill. Uh, had developed E. coli 0157H7, which is the same bacteria uh, that caused the Jack in the Box outbreak. And within a week, he had suffered a massive stroke uh, and uh, was hospitalized for about five months. Uh, he now cannot walk, uh, can't talk, can't feed himself, um, and you know essentially has to be cared for 24 seven by his parents. Uh, you know, fortunately, you know, we filed a lawsuit and fortunately we were able to reach a settlement with a variety of companies and middlemen and restaurant that will allow uh, for this child to be taken care of the rest of his life. God, it's so horrible. It is pretty horrible. You started your your blog. We'll, we'll talk about the fact that your, your blog has expanded into a network of blogs, but you started your blog in, in 2002 and your very first post was titled, Put Me Out of Business, Please. <laughs> that was almost 20 years ago. You're still in business. Yeah, it, but business has changed, has you know, and uh, I was speaking this week. Uh, actually, Monday was uh, World Food Safety Day um, and the, from the WHO. And I was giving a talk on Monday to uh, uh, Unilever, a company uh, based in Europe. Uh, and that topic of put me out of business came up. And yes, I'm still in business, but the business has changed uh, over time, uh, really for the first decade of my practice, about 95% of all the revenue uh, for, to Marler Clark were E. coli cases linked to hamburger. Uh, and nowadays that's pretty close to zero related to uh, hamburger or red meat. Um, you know, and I, I take some level of pride in you know using civil litigation as a blunt instrument for social change, but nonetheless an instrument of social change. But also, I've spent a lot of time, you know, pushing industry both morally and ethically, and government in the same way, you know, to enact regulations that really complement the civil litigation side of what I do, and so. You know, the fact of the matter is there's less kids getting sick from hamburger. It used to be E. coli uh, used to be called the hamburger disease. Yeah. It's not no longer called that. Unfortunately, these bugs are around and they've gotten into things like romaine lettuce and sprouts and all kinds of things. And so I'm a little bit like the proverbial, you know, Dutch boy sticking his finger in the dike, but we're making progress. I mean, and, and I think this meat issue in E. coli has shown that, in fact, we can make progress 
It's just a lot of concerted effort. Yeah. And, and has that progress come about on both the government and industry side? Have, have government regulations gotten tougher? Have, has industry done more to protect safety? Uh, you know, it's a little of both, yeah. you know, and then there's me that kind of comes in and, you know, wax them if they get out of line. Yeah. And but, you know, I, I, as you know, Bob, I, I spend probably about a third of my time traveling the world, uh, trying to convince people uh, why it's a bad idea to poison their customers. And, you know, I've spoken to every major industry group you could imagine. Uh, you know, some people are not that happy that I'm there. Some people walk out, some people yell. And But for the most part, the fact that, you know, I'm consistently sending the message that we can do better has opened the doors for me to have conversations with people I normally wouldn't have a conversation with. And I think once they see my commitment, not only to protecting my client's rights and making sure my client is cared for, but also to put me out of business uh, is, you know, is something that I think industry has to grapple with and government has to grapple with. You know, I've pushed government both in testimony in front of the you know, House. Uh, I've uh, petitioned the government to change regulations successfully. So I sort of look at all of that happening and the blogging aspect, which is kind of a segue into, into this, the blogging aspect has allowed me a, in a sense, an unhindered platform to tell people what the hell I think, unvarnished. And some of my some of my posts have been very unvarnished. Yeah. And uh, so I think I look back on the time meeting uh, Kevin for breakfast on Bainbridge Island, where he had this idea of, you know, I think I'm going to start a company that does blogs. Would you like to do one? And I was like, uh, sure, I'll give it a shot. And that I, it's hard to wrap my head around the fact that that's, you know, 19 years ago. Yeah. So so that was how you got started uh, at the prodding, at the at the urging of Kevin. Yeah, I, I call, uh, you know, the, I call Kevin the the blog father, B-L-A-W-G, <laughs> blog father. So, yeah. yeah. And I mean, that was I I'm assuming that was pretty much still in the early days of when you had gone off and started your own practice. Did, did, did you. I mean, what was your thinking other than Kevin suggesting you do it? How did you see that it would fit in? What were you thinking? How would it might fit into your practice? You know, I have to tell you that I think both Kevin and I didn't probably really grasp how blogging might really actually be useful at that time. And I think over time, you know, at first... I, I didn't really understand quite the the power of the platform. Yeah. And also, too, you know, in 2000, 2002, that, that time frame, what we call sort of typical media, whether print media, you know, TV, cable and stuff, was still robust. Right. And... Facebook and Google News and stuff, that was all, you know, not there in the way that we deal with now. 
the the traditional way of getting information out to the public really even in that early stage was what I would call the typical way you did it. You know, you'd file a lawsuit, you know, you get interviewed by the newspaper or TV, be on TV, you might be on evening news, all of that I did. But, you know, as the that media infrastructure has fragmented and collapsed, that's where I started to really see blogging as an avenue of of making sure that my voice was heard. And that's the thing that I now see, you know, that on an everyday basis. Was there uh, any any point at which you started to become maybe more uh, acutely aware of, of the potential or the power of blogging in your for your practice? Or- I, I actually remember specifically. Um, it was uh, the fall of 2006, and there was a significant uh, E. coli outbreak linked to uh, spinach produced in uh, uh, California. And the that outbreak was for the leafy green industry, what the E. coli outbreak was to the beef industry for Jack in the Box. But by 2006, the media landscape had changed enough where getting coverage about what was going on and what I was doing was such that having the blog platform to lay out like, what I thought about the case and what I thought about, you know, the industry and what was going on with my clients became much more important. And I started seeing reporters not even contacting me, but just going to my blog and yanking a quote out of my blog. And according to Bill Marler's blog, blah, blah, blah. So I think that really was the point in time where I started to see the power of blogging and I'd probably guess, Bob, from 2002 to 2006, I may have had a total of, I don't know, less than 100 blog posts. Uh, Since 2006, I probably have 20,000 blog posts. I mean, not only that, I mean, you're you're not just a blogger, you're, you're a blogging empire. I mean, you, you've got you've got a, a litany of I think you've got 10 different blogs right now under the under your law firm's name and a publication, Food Safety News. How right. did that expansion happen? How did you go from your blog to having, you know, this this stable of blogs and this and, and Food Safety News is it's not just a, it's not I mean, it's a blog, but it's really a a publication of its own right. Yeah. So so I'll try to answer the the blog part and then the food safety news part separately. So uh, the the thought process of having multiple blogs dealing with very specific bacterium is is really the fact that there's in the public health field and in the science field there are people that are just specifically interested in a particular bacteria or virus. And that was a place for me to connect with those people, some of whom, you know, I 
could utilize as expert witnesses or uh, if I'm you know, moving on a piece of legislation involving a particular bacteria like salmonella. I've been trying to, for the last 10 years, I've been trying to ban salmonella from chicken. So that would be something that I'd be very focused on on the salmonella blog. So it is, it's, it also, my blogging is also a place for me to help categorize and log what the heck is going on in a particular bacteria or a particular field. So I can go back now, I've got a historical database of, oh yeah, I remember there was an article on such and such. And it's highly likely that I can go back and find me yakking about it and the link to it so I can pull it and I can use it again. Food Safety News was thought of, again, as news publications, maybe disintegrate isn't the right way to use, that's not maybe not the right term, but that sometimes it, that's how it feels. Things have just kind of collapsed, you know, in, a, in, a, in the real way. And, and it's been, I think it's, we're, we're not served well by that as a, as a population. But be that as it may, we got to deal with it. But one of the things in, uh, in about 2006, there was a push for new food safety legislation. My feeling about it was there were lots of disasters that would help push legislation, but there wasn't a lot of media infrastructure and ecology to sort of help coalesce that you know, sort of movement. Also, there was a lack of coverage uh, of what was going on in the House and Senate as it relates to food safety. So food safety news really became sort of my vehicle to help move food safety through that, that gap. And so I reached out to a longtime friend of mine, uh, Dan Flynn, who had I'd met as a reporter in the 70s when he was covering me as a young city council member. And uh, I got him, uh, I got a uh, former editor of uh, the Seattle Post Intelligencer and her husband, who was a two-time Pulitzer Prize winning writer. And I started Food Safety News, but not as a platform, although sponsored by Marler Clark, I sort of have a hands-off approach to it. You know, I'll do a uh, an op-ed periodically called Publishers Platform, but I don't tell those guys what to write. I don't tell them, you know, what to to not write, yeah. and they do their own thing. And I sort of view myself as like the non-evil Rupert Murdoch, and so. Uh, but that's been, you know, how Food Safety News, and it's morphed over time. Dan's still there. We've got a cadre of uh, five writers, one in Europe, uh, and then the rest spread across the country. It pretty much is 24-7, 365, what the hell's going on in food safety in the world. And it's, you know, we now have, I think we have pushing 50,000 subscribers um, and I haven't looked at the latest, but it's we have millions and millions of hits per month of people visiting. And 
you know, it's talked about frequently. Um, you know, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many comments I get from, you know, when I'm at a food safety conference that like, oh, the first thing I look at is what's going on on food safety news. Um, and so, it's yeah, a, it's, it's such been, a unique model in law. I mean, it it, really it, is. as it's, you say, it's not it's not a marketing site for your firm. It's not right. a soapbox for you. It's a right. it's a, it's objective reporting by, as you've just right. said, professional journalists who know what they're doing. I haven't figured out how to make money doing it. But, uh, you know, that and that's yeah, actually, you know, it's interesting, Bob, you know, because one, one of the things, you know, as I uh, I turned 64 uh, a couple of weeks ago yeah, and uh, yeah, and I'm not thinking about retirement in a in a real sense because i don't know what the hell i would do with myself if i actually stopped being a lawyer but uh you know i i i'm trying to think about how to think about the next phase more so for food safety news than less for my law practice but you know i've got to start you know thinking about how you know because right now i have four full-time employees that that I pay for that, you know, that I don't get other than a, a sense of satisfaction. I don't that, that uh, if I didn't exist, neither would food safety news. Yeah. So I got to start to think about how to monetize that. Well, welcome, so, to, welcome to the challenges of traditional media. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I, I maybe maybe instead of Jeff Bezos flying into space, he could he could uh, throw me a couple of shekels from what he earned what he earned during the pandemic. So, what about your own blogs? How much? How do you find time with the, the the law practice you have? The travel? I realize you haven't done as much travel over the past year, but the travel you traditionally would have. How do you work this into your schedule? So, I mean, I'm a consumer of media. I now, I, I, I now have more, especially because I'm not traveling and not commuting is the same way. Uh, but I'm, you know, I, I read a lot, uh, not just about food safety. And I, I, I don't spend a whole lot of time on, you know, TV watching things other than the news. Uh, but I'm a big, big news consumer. And obviously, I have an interest in what's going on in, you know, the, the news, primarily with respect to food safety issues. But, you know, I have a variety of feeds that come to me uh, about, you know, various pathogens and bugs and food safety topics. They come to me pretty much nonstop. And I just in part by uh, while, while I'm consuming that information, I'm putting my thoughts in it. And so I've kind of how I find time is, is that while I'm consuming it, I'm also giving my comment on it. it, it it's so integrated in what I do. It doesn't really seem like something that I'm forced to do. It's not, it's, it's a little blogging for me, Bob, this might sound funny. Blogging to me is no different than taking a shower or getting a cup of coffee. You know, it's just sort of part of my day. And my wife is like shocked to, she's like, how do you come up with another topic? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) It just comes to me. So but uh, yeah, it's it's uh, I find time. 
Yeah. I find time. And I think, you know, to, to those people, especially in niche practices, I think it's probably easier to think about it if it's a niche practice. And I also think that I've gotten way past the idea that blogging is a methodology for getting clients. I, I'm just sort of past that. Yeah. My focus is on creating content that's useful. Yeah. And if it has the side benefit of somebody who needs help finding me, I look at that as you know, a secondary thing. But since I'm really very, very good at what I do, as it relates to you know taking care of clients, I'm really glad they found me as opposed to finding somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. And then a year from now, after things have gone sideways, then I'm kind of coming in to pick up the pieces. Yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, I read a lot of blogs and something it's, I hate to overgeneralize, but it seems that in, in a legal field, a lot of the substantive topical blogs tend to be written more by defense side, larger firms mm -hmm. and on the plaintiff side, especially among personal injury lawyers, they, so many of the blogs just tend to be, you know, SEO spam, you know, the, right. the, the blogs that are just full of, you know, truck accident, lawyer, uh, motorcycle, vehicle accident, whatever, you know, it, it, and I, I, just, I, I don't know why that is, but I mean, it's, it's so good to hear you say that you're not doing this, you know, for that reason, that you're doing it to, to educate and to share your opinions. And if as a, as a side benefit of that, somebody finds you, that's a good thing, but yeah, and, and that, that actually was advice that uh, Kevin gave me. That was advice Kevin gave me early in, early on. Yeah. Is, it's not, it wasn't that don't think about SEO, right. but don't think about SEO. Yeah. Given the quantity that you write and the topics that you write about, you don't need to be thinking about SEO. It's natural no. SEO. It is SEO. No, but you know, the, the, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example, Bob. But on Monday on my, on my blog, and then the folks at Food Safety News asked if they could republish it on Food Safety News because it was about World Food Safety Day. I had just, I was in the process of doing all of my presentations that were, you know, 5 a.m., 4 a.m., 3 a.m. this week. And I was pulling them together and I thought, oh, it'd be interesting to, you know, tell my readers that this is what I'm going to be doing it before the sun comes up every day this week. And so I sort of did that. And also it's a little shout out to the conferences. Might They might get an extra bit of traffic or something, which is good. I don't get paid to do it, so but it's good to have more people paying attention. But then I was thinking to myself as I was going through it is like, why is it important? You know, and then I just had this feeling to talk about a handful of cases of people that have impacted me in an incredible way. You know, the I talked about the kid, you know, from Canada who's can't walk, can't talk, can't feed himself. And you know, other families that have given me the honor to, to represent them and their families. And I ended it by a video of a, 
uh, a young couple who lost their child uh, tragically because of it, uh, because of a bacterial infection. And, you know, and I tweeted that out and got it on, you know, LinkedIn and other social media. And, you know, the impact that I got back from people were, it's like, we need to know that information. You know, people from the industry, we need to be reminded of that, that that's why our job as a food safety professional is so important because we want to avoid that. And then we want you not to sue us. But, but you know, to me, that's, just, that's the power that I have as, you know, an, a blogger, an advocate, a lawyer. It's complex. I'm not doing this all for altruistic reasons. Right. But I think if you can find, you know, a job that combines altruism with capitalism with a reason for being, I think you found your sweet spot. And I, I have found my sweet spot. And, you know, to Kevin's and your credit, you know, blogging has allowed me to maintain my voice, whether people like it or not. Yeah. I mean, you talk about it becoming, it's become second nature for you, uh, you know, like getting up and taking a shower in the morning. But what do you, do you think it's had an impact on your practice, a sort of larger impact on your practice over the years? Would your practice be different today had you not been blogging? I actually have a hard time thinking that I could have sustained a practice that's solely focused on foodborne illness, if it had not been the blogging environment that I've been able to create. But, but you know, more importantly, that I had the passion to continue to do it. You know, you, you, I think the as blog you, the blog helped fuel the passion. You mean? Or, yeah, yeah, I think it's one of those kind of things. I don't. I think it's probably hard to pick out what did what, yeah, right. but it's like you said, uh, you know, if, if you're just, you know, blogging for SEO type stuff and, or your, you know, the consuming public will figure that out. Right. At least that you hope they will. Uh, sometimes they don't, but a year later they figure it out and then they'll give me a call. But yeah, I, there's no way that my view is, is that given how hard it is for consumers to find a good lawyer, I mean, that's just a fact. And But, you know, I mean, I'm a guy in Seattle, Washington, who has an international foodborne illness practice. And it's hard for me to say, in fact, I can't say if the, if the blog ecosphere that I created didn't exist, that practice wouldn't exist. Yeah. It hasn't so, arrived, that's for sure. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, in fact, but but I would the practice exist without the passion that's behind it? And I think the answer is no. I mean, if I was just put it this way, if I if I wanted to make my life, I guess, easier I would hire a, you know, a cadre of SEO people to do nothing but write blog posts. I mean, most people and probably even yourself go, there's no way that Bill does all that. But the fact is, I do. 
And, and that's the magic of, you know, what I've been able to accomplish is. I might've said that at one point, but having now met you a few times, I would never say that anymore. <laughs> but, you know, I think my, my, many people's first impressions is that, oh, well, you've got to have somebody writing that. It may be because I'm sort of a, you know, I come across as an inarticulate dummy that they're surprised that, that uh, I write with such uh, clarity. So. Not at all. Bill, before we wrap up, any, any uh, last thoughts that you want to share about blogging, about food safety, about uh, the state of the world, anything else? <laughs> well, I, since it's, I, I have lots of thoughts about a lot of things, but let me sort of focus on blogging. Uh, my advice to uh, bloggers uh, or people who are considering blogging, uh, and I, I'm not, and I, I have to tell you that the the staff at Lexblog, they've been so responsive, and they're they're such great people to work with. Uh, I, you know, I, they've been the best over decades of helping make sure things are like the trains running on time, but I just wanted to say, but, you know, my advice to people who are either bloggers or thinking about blogging is, um, to really let, let your, you know, sort of the passionate side of you for what you're doing come through. You know, to be genuine, to, you know, focus on trying to do the moral and right thing. And I, I think that that comes across over time that, you know, people may not agree with your point of view, but they don't disagree that you're passionate about it. So and I think that's the most important thing. Well, Bill, thanks so much for chatting with us today. It's been a real pleasure to uh, have a chance to catch up with you. Awesome. Well, it's good to see you. And I'm, I'm glad you made it through the COVID cycle. And, you know, hope, I look forward to breaking bread with you sometime in the future. Yeah, I've got to get out to Seattle soon. Or if you're in the Boston area, let me know. Yeah, thanks again to Bill Marler for joining us today. And uh, this was episode 43 of This Week in Legal Blogging. If you haven't yet, be sure to peruse our full library of shows wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, drop us a quick rating or review. We would appreciate it. Last but not least, head over to lexblog.com slash T-W-I-L-B for outlines of each and every show. On behalf of myself and everybody at Lexblog, thanks for listening.